six. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell them if you could give your grandparents any gift for Christmas, what would you give your grandparents? Any gift for Christmas to your grandparents. chapter 6. Let's hear a few of you. Uh, what would you give your grandparents if you could give them any gift? A good time. A dog. A million bucks. I couldn't hear you. What? Another year to live. What? Answers to all of their questions. Anybody else? If you give your grandparents anything, what would it be for Christmas? I couldn't hear you. AR-15. Nice. You have to yell. I can't hear you. A big sweater. Nice. Well, if I could do anything for my grandpa, I would treat him to... uh, a baseball game because he used to treat me to baseball games all the time. I'm sure he would love that. So I have a sneaking suspicion, though, that if you could get anything, if your grandparents could receive anything from you, it would be time spent with you. You know, it's interesting, you know, when people get older, especially those that may be like on hospice or they're toward the very end of their life, they don't think back usually on, I wish I had that Mustang, you know, I drove around my favorite car for another year, or I wish I had worked harder, or wish I had even achieved more in life, you know. A lot of people regret maybe some painful mistakes they make in relationships they wish they could redo, But most often, they usually wish for more time with those people most dear to them. And I just kind of got thinking about that, and I was thinking, you know, Jesus kind of treats us like that all the time. That if he could wish anything for us, it would be just more time spent with us, being real with us all the time. That's how he kind of lived his life when he was here on earth and modeled for us. And I think he would say that to us all the time, sort of like, again, your grandparents. They usually, if anything, would want more time spent with you, of anything. So we're going to be getting into Romans chapter 6 here in a second. And part of this, we've talked about this before quite a bit. Uh, one of the things that's going to come up in our talk today is living an abundant life in Christ, right? And Christ often talks about um, the abundant fruit of living in a life with him. Remember the scriptures... Um, that Jesus talked about the vine and the branches in John, where he talks about, apart from me, you can do nothing, but in me, you can bear much fruit. Remember when he walked by the fig tree once with the disciples, and 
he goes to pick some fruit from it, and the fig tree w- was producing what? Nothing, right? So he curses the fig tree, and they walk by the next day or later that day, and what happened to the fig tree? Is dead. Nothing at all, right? So Jesus obviously wants us to bear much fruit or bear an abundant life or live an abundant life, something that's important to him. How many of you like fruit? So I think fruit should be like the number one food group. I don't know about you, but it's, it's good, right? So I picked up my favorite fruit, raspberries here. Now, unfortunately, there's not a lot of them. I thought about this after I bought them. I'm like, I probably should have bought a lot more. But you can pass them around if you want to enjoy some raspberries. Maybe just take like two because there's probably not that many for everybody. I don't know. You could probably eat a lot more. But I love raspberries. You know, my favorite memory, just kind of a fun memory, of raspberries is I have an, an aunt that lives on the Grand Coulee River. Any of you know where Grand Coulee River is? Close through Washington, right? Or Columbia River, I mean. It's near the Grand Coulee Dam. So the Columbia River is like the third biggest river in the uh, United States based on water volume. But anyways, they get free irrigation and electricity because they're like living in the shadow of this dam. And so everybody there has like this massive orchards right next to the dam. And I remember one couple times we went to go stay with them. I get up in the morning, my breakfast was literally picking these raspberries. But unlike, unlike this, they were like about this big, these humongous raspberries you pick off. I'm like, this must have been what it was like when the Israelites went into the promised land, you know, and they're like grapes the size of, you know, the huge grapes and all this. They had grapes and raspberries and all this. But anyways, just a fun memory. All right. Anybody have any New Year's resolutions you would want to share? You know, often when you have a new year, just two. Oh, gotcha. Okay. And uh, New Year's resolutions obviously are something that a lot of people do when they want to. It's a cause of reflection. You look back at your life over the last year and you think, you know, I'd like to do something slightly different than last year. Right? So a New Year's resolution usually is out of a desire to do something a little better or do something more often that's important and do something less often that's not so important. Right? So just three little things I put down of mine. Eating less sugar, I've been working on. I don't count raspberries, so that's healthy sugar. And more exercise, which I've been working on and more reading, which I've been doing a really, really good job at. But three things I definitely want to continue to improve. You might have a list of your own of some things you want to do more or less of. So just to kind of remind us of where we've been, chapter 1 in Romans, we talked about Paul inviting us into his apostolic ministry or inviting us to start new ministries with him, to have, if you would, an apostolic mindset where you're always looking for opportunities to start something new in particular, to partner with Jesus in something new. And if you think about it, as part of a New Year's resolution, that's really what you're doing. You're partnering with God, a conviction he puts on your heart, to start something new in your life, right? So what might be that God might be asking you to do that's something new this year that he wants to start in your heart or in your mind, or perhaps something maybe you've just started working on, but you want to take it to the next level and kind of upgrade, if you would. Chapter 2, we talked about being spiritually circumcised of heart rather than physically circumcised. Again, the idea that Jesus 
And the Lord in heaven, Lord, our God and our Father, cares so much about our hearts, right? He wants the attention of our hearts. And we're going to talk more about that today. This is a theme that continues to come up in Romans over and over and over idea. This, this idea that God wants our heart. Chapter 3, kind of the bad news, right? He talked about in verse chapter 3, verse 11, there is no one righteous, not even one, but everyone is naturally a sinner. By the way, I would encourage you to take some notes because I think at the end of our Roman series, we're going to do another little trivia night and have some rewards for you. So like probably a little bit of cash money. So you might want to pay attention. All right. Chapter four, we talked about this emphasis again on spiritual circumcision of the heart that God, that if God captivates our heart, that good deeds naturally follow. Right? Versus the opposite is sometimes we can fake it, especially under pressure, and have good deeds, but our heart can still be far from the Lord. So it's important, again, to have your heart captivated by the Lord, or your heart in tune with what God wants in your life. Chapter 5 was our three sermons in the first five verses. Talked about chapter, first one being that we are justified by faith, or in other words, we have right standing before God by faith, just like Father Abraham, right? So that no one can boast, right? It's a gift. Nobody gets to boast in receiving a gift. It comes from the gift giver. We talked about God granting purpose in suffering so that we become more like Christ in suffering. God wants to, again, mature us. So when something hard is going on, we're not supposed to just sit around and complain, but also ask that question, all right, God, this is uncomfortable. I don't like this. I wouldn't naturally choose this. But what am I supposed to be learning in the middle of this? What do you have to teach me? What's something that I can grow in or can learn from that I will benefit me the entire rest of my life? Right? And sometimes through hard things, we become more like Christ. Christ was again called the suffering servant, and he gives us a good example of um, just living well in the middle of difficult things. We talked about God pouring his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Again, he cares so much about our hearts. Romans 5, 8, it said, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, we hadn't earned a thing, but yet Christ died for us while we were still sinners, which again begs that question, which he's going to start addressing the whole rest of Romans, of why. Christ died for us while we didn't deserve it and while we were still sinners, and we've done nothing to deserve it, and we can do nothing to deserve it. Why? Right, and then we talked about that the more laws there are, the more sin increases, which continues to point to our need for a Savior, and that our culture shows us this all the time, their desperate need for their Savior. Every time there's brokenness in a situation or there's need in a situation, it simply points to our desperate need for Jesus. So that's where we left off a lot in Romans already and a lot more to come as we're about a third of the way through the book of Romans. All right, so we're going to be in Romans chapter 6, picking it up, starting in verse 1. It says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Again, he's starting to ask this question. Well, if Christ died for us while we were still, still sinners, why did he do that? And if he died for us while we're still sinners, does it matter what we do or how we live? Right? So what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? 
By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Right? So again, there's a lot of stuff in this. He asked this obvious question. Okay, so if Christ died for us while we were still sinners, and we can take advantage of that gift of forgiveness of God, does it matter how we live? Can we just treat Jesus like cheap grace, like we talked about? We treat it like a cheap gift. We can just go like, kind of like a slot machine, if you would, or an ATM. We just go up to Jesus every time. Ah, Jesus, I messed up again. Did it on purpose. Would you forgive me? Right? And just treat him like a cheap gift, cheap forgiveness. He, he goes on in verse 2, and he says, How can we live in sin any longer? We died to it. You might say, how can you live in sin any longer? You died to it. When you give your allegiance or your loyalty to Christ, he's going to unpack this in the rest of this chapter, you probably want to treat sin sort of like an allergic reaction. If you were allergic to something, anybody have any allergies? Strong allergies? Few? few? Any, any allergies you actually want to share? Don't mind sharing? Cats. Grass. There you go. Grass. Cotton. I have hay fever. So I know a few people had a, my wife had a, her roommate in, in uh, right out of college found out she was allergic to celery. Kind of an odd allergy. How'd she find out she was allergic to celery? Eat some celery. What happened to her? Went into aphylactic, how do you say, anaphylactic shock. Like stopped breathing, swelled up, you know. Didn't have an EpiPen because she didn't know she was there. So we were like rushing her to the hospital literally to try to save her life, right? If you have an allergic reaction to something that severe, do you avoid it or do you just treat it like, yeah, not a big deal? You avoid it, right? If you want to live, you avoid it. So again, if you want to treat sin like it's costly and then it costs Jesus something, you want to treat it like an allergic reaction. Where it's like, I don't want to have anything to do with sin. If you really get it, you really get the price that Jesus paid for you, then you want to treat sin like an allergic reaction. You want to have nothing to do with sin. Right? And he said, now that you've tasted the abundant life of Christ, the sweet fruit, right, of Christ, how can you live in a toxic death and toxic fruit anymore? So I bought some strawberries because I wanted to have a comparison between a healthy fruit and a unhealthy fruit for you, okay? The problem was, I bought them and I left them out to mold, and they molded and did such a good job molding so fast that I couldn't stand it and I had to throw them away. <laughs> They're in my office, and I was afraid of the spores floating around in the air in there. So I'm just going to describe these strawberries to you, okay? So I bought these strawberries. They're only three days that they were in my office, 
and in a container like this. And the strawberries sort of were smashed down on their own accord about half the width they were before. And when I went to go kind of pick them up, and I was smart enough to put some plates underneath just in case something happened, but there was green, black, white, purple, and yellow sort of floating around in this liquid underneath. That was the first thing, and I was like, oh, man, I was going to, like, offer some of you students to come up here and hide them in a box, you know, and try to get one of you to eat the moldy fruit and one eat the good fruit. No, no, no. It's disgusting, but it makes the point, right? So... Sin is moldy fruit. Abundant life in Christ is healthy fruit. Okay, so you get the, the picture. Well, the strawberries that were molded, not only that, but there was so much fuzz in this container, it was like growing out in every direction, white fuzz. And then the part that really disgusted me, which is why I couldn't hang on to it for another whole week, was there was all about these five-inch long spores growing straight up out of the strawberries with little black heads on top. Three days was all it took. So I don't want to know what it would be like after 10 days, which is about how much time there would have been. And then I forgot to buy more to do it again. But again, the question is, once you've tasted sweet fruit, if you're around or in a culture that's used to eating moldy fruit, why would you ever go back to moldy fruit? What Paul asks. Why? If you can taste something as amazing as a ripe red raspberry, blackberry, pick whatever fruit you like, apple, why would you ever go back to a worm-infested apple? Or a strawberry that's so unrecognizable that you just kind of turned your stomach. He says that's what it's like if you accept Christ and you say you're a Christian and you want to live for Christ, but then you go, nope. When I'm not here on Wednesday night or I'm not here on Sunday morning, I want to go back and I want to live in this moldy fruit world. Paul says, why would you do that? They have nothing in common. And their fruit and the difference of those two things is incredibly different. One of those, if you ingest it, you're going to end up in the hospital. It's going to cause brokenness in your life, disease in your life, distraction in your life. It's going to wear you down. The other one's going to give you energy and joy and a sweetness to your life. And he says that's what it's like to live for Christ and to abide by his word or to say you live for Christ, but to do nothing to abide by his word. This is the difference. He said, you have been given freedom from sin. You are not bound to it anymore. You are bound, in fact, to Christ. If you ask Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior. So again, he asked this question, why would we live like you're still a sinner trying to enjoy moldy fruit? Why would you do that? He said, instead, you can be bound to Christ. Either you have this option where you can either have a live a life dominated by sin or you can live a life bound by Christ and dominated by Christ. And they look very, very different. I liked, I don't know if any of you like history at all, but I really do like history. Ronald Reagan and John F. Kennedy, even though they're of different political parties, had a lot of similarities if you listen to how they talk to the American people. 
Reagan said over and over again, freedom is spelled D-U-T-Y, duty. Right? John F. Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Freedom is spelled O-B-L-I-G-A-T-I-O-N, obligation. Right? Now, both men really were saying the same thing. Right? Freedom does not mean what people think it means today. Right? People think freedom means you can do whatever you want to do, destructive or healthy. That is not the intention of freedom. When Christ says you are free in him, he doesn't mean go eat all the moldy fruits you want. Go destroy your life if you want to. Right? The idea of freedom under a biblical boundary is an obligation to Christ or being duty-bound to him. Does that make sense to you? When Reagan and Kennedy talked about freedom, they talked about the same thing. There is an obligation to being free. There are certain expectations to being free. There are certain responsibilities to being free. Real freedom doesn't mean destroying your life. Real freedom means defending it, protecting it, and living an abundant life. You're duty-bound to Christ. He continues in Romans chapter 6, verse 8. He says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been bought from, brought excuse me, from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness." For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but you are under the grace or the grace of Christ. Like again, he says, Christ has mastered death, and because you are bound to him, you also have mastered death. Verse 10, he says, Christ died once for all. He died for all. He never has to die again. It's a very high-priced gift that was paid but it only has to be paid once. And it covered all sin. Verse 11, he says, Just like Christ, if you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, you are just like Christ spiritually. You can have spirit, eternal spirit with him, right? Your old spirit is dead upon the cross. That which was bound to the ways of the world, that moldy fruit we were talking about. But you now are bound and belong to Christ and to your Father in heaven. He says, therefore, you have freedom to act as you wish. You're not bound to go and purposely give yourself an allergic reaction and to eat all this moldy, nasty fruit. You have no obligation to the world. You are free from that. Right? You're master over your sin. You can, in fact, control yourself. One of the fruits of the Spirit is what? Self-control, right? Your whole being is free in Christ, and you are loyal, bound to him. 
which means if you're bound to Christ, that means your spirit is bound to Christ. It also means your mind is bound to Christ. Your heart is bound to Christ. Your emotions are bound to Christ. Your body is bound to Christ. And your words are bound to Christ. And see, Paul's painting this picture. He says, you get to choose. You can have your whole self be bound to Christ and live an abundant life. Or you can have your whole self be bound to this world and pay the cost of it. You get to choose if you have freedom in Christ. Because you have no obligation to anyone but Christ. Continues in Romans 6.15, he says, What then shall we Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Right, again, he kind of asks this repetitive question. Well, if God paid for your sin, can you just go on sin anymore? Does freedom mean just wreck your life as much as you want? Shall we sin because we are no, not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness, or an abundant life. But thanks be to God that, you, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Again, he paints this picture. You're going to choose an allegiance. You're either going to be bound heart, mind, and soul to Christ? Or are you going to be bound, heart, mind, and soul to this destructive world? And the God of this world, the ruler of the air, also called the devil. Whether you mean to or not, you're going to choose a master. And you're going to be bound to them. So what master do you choose? What master, when you look at your life, have you been choosing? Are you choosing a life dominated by sin and brokenness? Or are you choosing a life dominated by an abundant life? Because you're going to head in one or two directions. Depending on who your master is and which master you really choose. You know, I've been youth pastoring for, or youth pastor and or helping youth pastor for over 20 years now. And almost every time I can predict what's going to happen with a student when they leave their home. Because usually by about their junior year of high school, they've decided who their master is. And if they truly, even when mom and dad aren't watching, do their best, not perfectly, but do their best to line their life up with Jesus and his biblical boundaries, they're going to have an amazing life. And if they're just doing enough to kind of slide under the radar, doesn't mean they're not stopped going to church or anything, but as soon as they get out on their own, they usually crash and burn. And it's rough because you see so many students that know what is good in their head but their heart is not captivated by the Lord. And if their heart isn't captivated, their heart chases a different master. And those students end up with divorces, broken marriages, 
Kids out of wedlock. A lot of them in drugs. I've had so many students that have been in prison, I can't even tell you. Sad. Because they all know better. They'll see me. I don't give them a hard time. They'll even bring it up. Should have listened to you. Should have listened to my parents. You will follow a master. What's it going to be? You're either training yourself now under the protection of your parents' roof. You're either training yourself now to have live, again, an abundant life for Christ, or you're training yourself to live a life dominated by the secrecy of sin. And both will yield dramatically different fruit in your life. Verse 18 says, Paul says, you have been set free, free from sin. You have become slaves of righteousness, so claim righteousness in your life. Don't be shy about it. Goes on in verse 19, it says, I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at the time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the results to eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, he repeats this theme. You are going to choose to either be a slave to wickedness, to impurity, and to the domination of sin in your life. Or you're going to choose to live for Christ and you're going to have holiness, purity, and a fruitful life, and eventually an eternal life, an ever-increasing portion in your life. And verse 23, again, so commonly used, for the wages of sin is death, or the reward of sin, whether it's in secret or well-known, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, I just want to encourage you to be duty-bound to Christ. If you really believe that Jesus died upon the cross for your sins, as he claims he did, said he is the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus claims to have a monopoly on truth and a monopoly on the way to the Father. It's a bold claim. And everybody, whether they're a Christian or not, recognizes that claim. No one else on the face of the earth has ever made that claim but Jesus. And there are many documentations, even by the Romans, that said, we have no explanation except for that Jesus died on the cross. We know that, super well documented. And that he rose from the grave. We cannot find him anywhere. The most powerful government on, government on the face of the earth searched high and low to try to find Jesus' body. They could not find it. Guarded by people who would have paid their life to guard him. You are either going to choose to live a life bound to the things of this world and pay the price of the things of this world, or you're going to choose to live a life bound to Christ and reap the reward 
of a life. Would you pray with me? With Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for the price you paid. Lord, we thank you that you, as we celebrated Christmas so recently, you came humbly to earth. Literally the most humble move in human history was you to leave the throne room of heaven and come to earth for us. In the form of a helpless babe. And then to live a life dedicated essentially to us and to the Father. Lord, I would pray that we would take what we know about you to heart and we would treat it as the most precious gift we have in our life. And that we would choose with all of our strength and all of our mind, all of our passion and all of our dreams, all of our uncertainties, Lord, and make ourselves duty-bound to you. And that you would guide each and every student and leader here through every challenge, through every uncertainty, through every great day, through every low day. Lord, that we would learn to walk in life with you. And that we would trust you for abundant fruit and joy in our life. Lord, I pray for every student here that is struggling with being overwhelmed by the things of this world that's hiding secrecy of sin in their life, Lord Jesus, that you would set them free, that they would realize that they've given their life and their heart to you, Lord. They are not duty-bound to any of that, but they are truly bound to you, and that they would exercise it and claim it and get accountability and walk in it. Unashamedly. Boldness, living boldly for you. Lord, be with us as we process this message and we discuss it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.